If you're new and visiting this morning, uh, my name is Brennan, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're visiting, you're our guest, so welcome on school holidays. Glad you could come and join us with the Taylors and the Woods Away. That's half the church, so you see the hole in around the front here. Uh, this is the last message in a fantastic kind of series, one of the series we've been doing, and that's in our series in Exodus, we've been pausing and looking at the Ten Commandments. I've loved it. It's been so good. The, the, the beautiful story of how a gracious God rescues his people and, and then gives them the steps of life, uh, the way to prosper and flourish as they follow him. And it's been all of grace and it's been amazing. And this morning, we arrive at the very last commandment. So we're going to read from God's word, the living, breathing word of God, uh, before I pray for us. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 20. If you're new to the Bible, that's right down at the front of the Bible, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read verse 17. I'm going to pray. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Look, God, we want to thank you this morning for your precious word. It is a living and a breathing word. It's a word that's more active than a double-edged sword slicing us and cutting us straight to the heart, Lord. And in particular, this morning, as we deal with the 10th commandment, Lord, a commandment about the heart, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would change us. Lord, work a miracle this morning in our midst and soften our hearts to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, and that is, have you ever met someone that was truly content? Truly content. Life circumstances don't seem to phase them. They have this kind of deep trust, a poise, peace, and faith. They're not constantly searching for the next best thing, the next best church or job or relationship, but there's this deep sense of satisfaction with what they have and an enjoyment of what's before them no matter what the season is. You know, there's an old Puritan called Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote a famous book, and the title kind of says it all. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. His point being that contentment is a rare jewel. And I want to put to us this morning that in this city in particular, it's an especially rare jewel. You know, we live in one of the wealthiest cities in the history of the world. Uh, The average weekly household income as of a few years ago in Sydney is just over $2,000 a week or just around $100,000 a year. But despite our material prosperity, as a people, we're not satisfied. We, We find ourselves 
deeply dissatisfied. There's this culture of comparisons, constantly comparing ourselves to those around us. And social media kind of fans it into flame and kind of allows us to, to view the best parts of the lives of those around us, their holidays, their food, their work, their kids, their relationships. And the fruit is deep discontentment. Can you relate to that? Do you sometimes find yourself being overcome by deep cravings? Well, there's good news this morning because we're going to dive into God's Word, which I believe has much to say on this topic as we look at the Tenth Commandment. If you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, True Contentment. And I have three main points, which are actually three questions that I want to address about this commandment. And the majority of the time is going to be spent on the first. And that first question uh, I want to examine is, what does the Tenth Commandment mean? As we look through these three different questions, uh, I really just have a hope for us. I hope that we would experience as a church the deep contentment to be found in the power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to experience this morning, the deep contentment that I believe is to be found in his power and presence. So we're going to dive straight into that first question this morning, which is question number one, what does the 10th commandment mean? Well, according to the Bible, covetousness has three key aspects to it. An inward aspect, an outward aspect, and an upward aspect. And we're going to look at those in turn. Firstly, an inward aspect. Coveting is about the heart. Verse 17, that verse we read before, begins, You shall not covet. You see, the word translated in verse 17 is the Hebrew word, hamad, which means to desire. But not just any desire, to strongly desire, to deeply desire, to treasure, to desire passionately. And here is where the 10th commandment is kind of unique compared with all the other commandments that have come before it. You see, all the other commandments have explicitly been about actions, but only implicitly about the heart. Murder, we saw, also deals with Anger and the condition of the heart. Adultery deals with lust and the condition of the heart, but only implicitly. The Tenth Commandment is different because it's explicitly about the heart. You shall not strongly desire. You shall not have this kind of wrong heart condition. Well, here's kind of the obvious question that it makes you kind of think as you, as you hear that is, so is the 10th commandment a ban on desiring? Does God forbid desire and make it a sin? No, he doesn't. You see, Christian faith is different from Buddhism. You know, in Buddhism, it teaches that the root of all suffering is disappointment from unmet desires. 
And so the solution to avoid suffering and therefore achieve nirvana is to kind of remove all desire from your life. The logic is, if you don't desire anything, you'll never be disappointed by loss and you'll never suffer. And it kind of makes logical sense in one way. But the problem is, it's impossible to achieve. We're all people with intrinsically deep desires. And in fact, the Bible teaches people to desire. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see, for Christians, having godly desire is really important. Well, what is the Ten Commandment actually about then? Well, that brings me to the second part of coveting, which isn't just inward, it's also outward. You see, coveting is about a heart that wants what belongs to someone else. Verse 17, again, it says, You shall not covet, you shall not strongly, passionately desire or treasure your neighbor's house, or perhaps better translated, your neighbor's household. Just in case you were wondering what might be included under that category, God gives us a list of things. You shall not strongly, passionately treasure your neighbor's wife or his servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, coveting is therefore about a heart, but it's also outward. It's about the way we treat our neighbors. Well, what is coveting then? Coveting is deeply desiring things that don't belong to you. It's theft of the heart. I think Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book on the Ten Commandments, puts it so well. He says, first we covet when we want something for ourselves that belongs to someone else. Coveting is more than thinking, it'd be great to have a nice house or I'd like to have a better job. Coveting longs for someone else's stuff to be your stuff. Coveting says, I want their house. I want his job. If only I could have what they have, then I'd be happy. You know, the point is, rather than celebrating with the blessing of God in our neighbor's life, and wanting the best for them, and rejoicing in their success. We want it for ourselves. And in fact, often we despise them for it. Now notice how coveting occurs also close to home. Notice it doesn't say, don't covet the king's possessions, but don't covet your neighbor's possessions. You see, we tend not to envy the Bill Gateses or the John Pipers or the Hugh Jackmans of the world. They're so far removed from us. But we tend to find ourselves coveting and envious and jealous of siblings and colleagues and friends and schoolmates and neighbors. It's the husband of someone else at church that leaves you thinking, why can't mine be more godly like theirs? All the holidays that your friend has that leaves you thinking, why can't we travel to the places they do? It's the car that makes you think, why is my car a bomb compared to theirs? 
or the home? Why can't I own a beautiful home like they do? Or the job? Why can't my job be as flexible as hers? Or the parents? Why aren't my parents as nice as his? Or athleticism? Why aren't I as athletic or gifted or smart or godly as her? You see, coveting is the antithesis of the way God calls us to treat our neighbors. You know, in Matthew 22, 37, uh, Jesus is talking about what the greatest commandment is. And he says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means that we're to have the same commitment to the prosperity and success and blessing and good of our neighbor as we have to our very own selves. Can you love your neighbor as yourself and what what belongs to him or her for yourself? You can't. You know, coveting can occur in so many different things. It even can occur in Christian ministry. And I have to confess, it happened to me uh, a couple of years ago. We've been, as, as many of you know, if you're a member of this church, hoping, praying uh, to start a service in Waitara. And there was this beautiful PCYC venue being built. And we thought, lo and behold, the, the perfect venue for us as a church to start a service there. And uh, I was dreaming beautiful dreams of uh, a service in Waitara to reach Waitara. And uh, I received a flyer in the mail. And the flyer said on the front, New Church to Waitara, the Link Church, meeting at PCYC. And I have to confess to you, my heart wasn't full of gratitude for God bringing a new church into our community to reach the lost in our neighborhood. My heart sank. And I found myself deeply envious, opportunity lost. You know, if we truly love our neighbors as ourselves, we would celebrate the blessing of God upon their life. Coveting, however, is about a selfish disregard for your neighbor. So it's not just inward, it's outward. But it's not just outward, it's also upward. At the heart of covetousness is really one thing, and that is discontentment. We're not happy with what we have. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism in Article 81, it puts it this way. It says, The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. And in so many ways, this kind of discontentment that the Tenth Commandment talks about is the oldest of sins. And it takes us all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired, it's the same word, hamad, to deeply desire, to covet, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Eve believed in that moment the lie of Satan and thought that God was holding out on her. The fruit was that she deeply desired to eat what was forbidden. But when we stop and think about it, why are we discontent with what we have? Why are we discontent at all? We fundamentally believe that God is holding out on us. We don't believe that what we're experiencing is God's best for us. We look around and we see other things, we think are better, and we crave them. At the root of covetousness is the belief that something other than God is able to truly satisfy us. Like a home, or a lifestyle, or a relationship, or a career, or money. At the heart of covetousness, therefore, is idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5 makes it explicit. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, puts it helpfully when he says, What is an idol? It is something, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. It's so true. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. When we covet what is not ours to have, we seek that person or that thing more than God. And look at the wisdom of God in ordering the Ten Commandments. He begins with no other gods and ends with the same. The Tenth Commandment makes explicit God's desire to be Lord over our hearts. See, at the heart of covetousness is idolatry. It's, but it's ludicrous when we consider the depth of the mercy and grace of God. You see, the clearest picture we have in the Bible of what God is like is to be found in the Lord Jesus, who in Mark 10.45 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. How beautiful is our God. 
The heart of God is humble, self-sacrificial love. And yet we reject him for more stuff. Well, what is the 10th commandment about? Coveting is about deeply desiring things that don't belong to you. In the inward, about the desires of the heart. In the outward, it's about selfish disregard for your neighbor. And in the upward, it's about loving someone or something more than God, or put another way, idolatry. Well, that's our first question that I want us to look at this morning. But the second question is this. How can I discern the presence of covetousness in my life? Well, Kevin DeYoung, as I mentioned earlier, has a wonderful book on the Ten Commandments, and he gives us four excellent signs to be on the lookout for. And uh, I want to go through each of these ones because I think they're so good. The first sign that you're struggling with covetousness is this. It's if you've hurt others to get more for yourself. Now, you might have deliberately hurt others to gain more for yourself. For example, the boss that kind of cuts corners and cheats his employees. You know, recently in the papers, there was an example of a famous celebrity chef who's being pursued by Fair Work Australia for underpaying his staff for many years. You might have deliberately cut costs and hurt others to gain more for yourself, but in wealthy, educated North Shore Sydney, perhaps the more common is the unintentional hurt caused to others. Again, Tim Keller, I think, puts it so well. He says this. He says, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Isn't that so true? We might not intentionally harm others, but unintentionally, in the pursuit of our idol, cause people deep distress and damage. You see, the fruit of covetousness is hurt towards others to gain what you want for yourself. It's an unrelenting determination towards selfish gain, regardless of the cost, whether that be family or whether that be friends and community. To achieve a higher place in business, to gain more wealth and advantage, to secure a relationship. Point number one, if you've hurt others, to get more for yourself. Sign two, if you're preoccupied with making or accumulating more. Here's a tough question. What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What do you find your thoughts naturally going towards when you've got nothing else to do? If you daydream about accumulating more, more holidays, more career moves, more wealth, more property, a relationship, 
lo and behold, you probably have at the heart your idol. Tim Keller puts it this way, I think it's so helpful. He says, the true God of your heart is where your thoughts effortlessly go when there is nothing else demanding your attention. You know, for me, I find it so easy uh, to do this. You know, uh, Charlotte and I, we've been saving for a, a house deposit or a unit deposit or something like that. We're nowhere near, but rather than putting money in account, which seems to not achieve anything at the moment with interest rates so low, uh, we've decided to do some uh, buying of shares. And what I can find myself in my spare moments doing is thinking, I wonder how they're going. Logging online, having a look. Ooh. Another moment goes by, a couple of hours later, you think, I wonder how they're going now. <laughs> As though there'd be some remarkable change logging on and checking. My heart pulled towards that. You know, in terms of pop culture, perhaps the classic illustration of this is Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, you know, obsessed with his precious. You know, it's this powerful metaphor in The Lord of the Rings uh, about this evil ring and its power such that regardless of the good intentions of the person who holds that ring, the ring's power is such that eventually it will corrupt them. The danger with possessions is that they can do exactly the same thing. It doesn't happen quickly. Or you'd probably notice it. And that's why the Bible uses the metaphor of thorns slowly growing up in a person's life and strangling them. It's a slow drift. You see, holidays are a good gift, but if they grab your heart and they become the object of your devotion, you're in danger. Or sign one if you've hurt others to get more for yourself. Sign two if you're preoccupied with making or accumulating more. But also sign three, which is if you're unwilling to give up what you have. You know, it's not just obsession with more that points to covetousness, but a refusal to give up what you already have. Tim Keller again says it this way. He says, idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What if we lost it would make life not worth living? We make sacrifices to appease and please our gods who we believe will protect us. We look to our idols to provide us with a sense of confidence and safety. What are you afraid of losing? A relationship? A child? The approval of your peers? A place on a team? A home? The respect of your colleagues? Jesus tells us a story in the Bible of a rich young man. And it wasn't that this rich young man was obsessed with gaining more. But it was that he refused to give up what he already had. Covetousness. 
not about giving it all away, but it's about an attitude of generosity. What's mine is God's. Here's a really hard question. What does your bank account say about what you love the most? Is it cafes or holidays or designer clothes or property or private tuition and nice cars or the Lord Jesus? Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But it's not just if you're unwilling to give up what you have. It's also if you're frequently grumbling about your state of life. You know, Joe Rigney describes it as this. He says, covetousness is an ungodly preoccupation with the advantages of others. And part of the fruit of covetousness is the snare of compare. We're always looking to what others have and what we don't have. Whatever you're most likely to complain about not having is likely to be a source of covetousness for you. It could be something like health. Maybe you're struggling with a long-term disability. It could be that you're overweight and you wish that you were fit like others. It could be singleness and a longing for a relationship. It could be marriage and a wish that a spouse would lift their game. It could be a home, it could be holidays, it could be any number of things. But here's what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6. He says, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. You know, covetousness is about gaining something that doesn't belong to you. But Paul says godliness with contentment is true gain. And so we want to move now from looking at what the signs of covetousness are to our final question, question three, which is how can we find true contentment? You know, you might have been going through that list of signs of covetousness, hurting others, Yes, tick. Preoccupied with gain. Yes, it's me. Tick. Unwilling to give up. Yes, that's me. Tick. Frequently grumbling. All of them are me. Yes, I'm a coveter. But what hope is there for me? You know, in many ways, the 10th commandment is the command that most exposes us and ought to humble us before God. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says this. He says, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a saviour. That's so good. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to any easy list of rules can feel, like Paul, that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward commandment not to covet, he is brought to his knees. It's so true. Well, here's that question again. If that is true, how can we grow? How can we change? What hope is there for us? Well, and this is the key point that we've been working towards all along. Our hope is through the all-satisfying power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the lie of covetous 
desire is that it promises something it can't deliver. Satisfaction. You know, when our satisfaction and contentment are tied to our circumstances, our satisfaction is unstable at best. But the Apostle Paul found a contentment in life that did not depend on his circumstances. He puts it this way in Philippians 4. He says in verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see, Paul had found a way of finding contentment that didn't depend on his circumstances. Whether he was high or low, whether he was rich or poor, whether he was hungry or fed. What is his secret? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, Paul had learned to be content in every and any situation because he knew that Christ was with him and would strengthen him. There was no situation he could not face because Christ was with him. Now, it's important to remember that Paul wasn't sipping lattes at this point. He was in prison, in chains, as he wrote this letter. You know, earlier in the letter, in Philippians 1, 19, Paul writes it this way. He says, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, that's me being in chains in prison, will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me is to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul found contentment even in prison, knowing that Christ was with him, working in him and through him, and would strengthen him to face every situation. You see, the truth is that in and of ourselves, we can't change. We can't stop our hearts from craving what belongs to our neighbor. But here's the good news, church, that the Lord Jesus came for us. That the Lord Jesus, rather than looking to steal from others as he came, he gave everything away. And he emptied himself. And he humbled himself to die. But he achieved more than just a great example or even just forgiveness of sins for you at the cross. He rose in power. He ascended on high. He sent his Holy Spirit, which dwells in you. You have become permanently joined to Christ through his Spirit, connected to the greatest source of power and of love, and of wisdom, and of humility, and of grace in the whole universe. He has adopted you into, into his family and made you an heir to the fullness of his riches. 1 Peter 1.8 puts it this way. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know, the Lord Jesus offers you a satisfaction and joy far greater than anything the world has to offer. And my heart for you this morning is that you would taste and see it. You know, I think so often our struggle in this is that we fail to see and believe the heart of the Lord for us. And I think even in the last nine, ten weeks, becoming a first-time dad, holding my little boy Elijah in my arms as he lies there sort of grumbling in his sleep, and my heart so filled with love for this child, this little boy, that's made me think how deep the Father's love for us, that we are but a child in his arms, And that his heart is so full of love and compassion for us that he would send his son for us. How good he is. You know, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, who wrote that book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he says about his own experience of this. He says, I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. How true that is. Everything we need, we have in our Lord Jesus. See, according to the Bible, our problem isn't too much desire. It's not enough desire. We want little cheap things too much and great things too little. C.S. Lewis famously puts it this way. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for little things of this world when Christ offers us everything. No, rather than seeking to belong, uh, seeking what belongs to others, I encourage you, church, that we might ask Jesus to use what He's entrusted to us already for His glory, to surrender it all to Him. You know, we can tell ourselves that we desperately need these small worldly trinkets when we have the riches of Christ on offer. You know, as John Piper has famously said, we ask for a thimble when God has given us an ocean. How can we find true contentment? Through the all-satisfying power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in closing, what does the 10th commandment mean? Well, covenanting is about deeply desiring things that don't belong to you. It's about the heart. It involves a selfish disregard for your neighbor And it's driven by idols. How can I discern the presence of covetousness in my life? Well, if you've hurt others to get more, if you're preoccupied with making or accumulating more, if you're unwilling to let go of what you have, or you find yourself frequently grumbling about life. And finally, how can I find true contentment? 
through the all-satisfying power and presence of Jesus. You know, as I was preparing this message, I, I wondered if this morning there's some people here who, who, as I've been speaking from God's Word, realize that this is you. This is speaking directly to you. That you've been struggling with deep discontentment. I want to encourage you this morning. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry to get out those doors and leave. Do business with God this morning. Spend some time at the end of this service and even now asking the Lord for forgiveness. Tell Him you're sorry for disbelieving in His goodness and trusting in His power. And repent from it. Turn from it. Turn away from the comparisons. Turn away from the accumulation. Turn away from clinging onto worldly possessions and surrender it all to His control. And ask Him to open the eyes of your heart to taste and see how good He is. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as your people, we just want to thank you. Thank you for your abundant goodness. Thank you that you supply more than our every need. You superabundantly supply us with things that we don't even need because you are a generous and merciful God. And Lord, I pray this morning for those of us who, as we've listened to this, realize there are certain things other than you that have deeply gripped our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you for the power of your resurrection, victory, and new life. Thank you for the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray that you would grant us the grace to run from these idols, these false gods, these false sources of satisfaction, and to trust you completely. And Lord Jesus, I pray that this church might be a church where contentment is not a rare jewel, but a common grace and gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.